Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to EM Guidewire, coming to you from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina at the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio. I'm Neha Ray, PGY2. And I am Travis Barlock, PGY2, brought to you by Safety Goggles. In the COVID era, everyone is a four eyes. Thanks for that, Travis. Today, <laughs> we're going to be talking about posterior eye problems. Do you have a case to start us off with, Travis? Yes, I do. I remember this very well. So this case was a 75-year-old male, history of coronary disease, carotid disease, and diabetes, who came in with sudden onset painless vision loss in his right eye that happened shortly prior to arrival. He has only some vague light perception on the right on visual acuity, and he denied any headache or this ever happening before. Interesting case. We'll come back to that. So when you come in with an eye problem, what kind of history are you looking to take? Well, there's a couple things. For example, I think it's really important to figure out if this is in one eye or both eyes. I think that is one of the first things to figure out. Like, is the vision loss happening in just one field or, or both? So if they, And you can just check that quickly by covering an eye up and seeing if they are still reporting a defect. Otherwise, you want to know if this is new or if it's happened before. Again, getting back to the vision loss itself, is it the whole visual field? Is it just a fraction of it? And then also, I also want to know if it's painful or not. Are there any things that you kind of think about? Yeah, I think that's a good thing to think about. So you have your classic HPI, but the eye itself has multiple areas that you're looking at in terms of which eye and then what part of the visual field. Next up, you have your physical exam. For that, I think about making sure you have your staff and making sure you have your stuff, which for the eye, you fortunately don't need too much staff, but you have a lot of stuff. So you'll inspect the eye, you'll have some visual acuity done, the vital sign of the eye, check their pupils, check their extraocular movements, check their visual fields, then you'll get your tonometer, check their intraocular pressure, do your slit lamp exam, get your fundoscope, <laughs> get your ultrasound, take a look at the eyes, and then your brief physical exam is all done. <laughs> nice and brief. Yeah, I kind of think of it as like, I think we all kind of incorporate a very basic eye exam into almost like every patient encounter. Like, you know, their pupils were equal and reactive and then their extraocular movements were intact. And so I think that's pretty easy to like reflexively incorporate into, you know, assessing an eye. But then the things that you just said that like, I think that, you know, you got to definitely add on to it when you've got the eye complaint is always, like you said, the visual acuity, the pressures, doing the slit lamp exam, fundoscope, and then if you have an ultrasound to, to do it. So those are like the, the things to like add on. Absolutely. And I think with that, having a setup in your system where someone comes in with an eye complaint, having your techs or your nurses help you out by getting that visual acuity done before you even see the patient really helps with the flow of things. 100%. One thing that I know that you showed all of us, which was super helpful, was the Edinburgh Vision Loss Diagnostic Algorithm. And if anyone wants to go and look that algorithm up themselves, it's it's very useful, but just kind of talking it out, it, it I think it's very intuitive. It kind of makes sense what to deduce from it. So basically, my interpretation of it 
is it helps to like anatomically kind of locate where the problem is based on the complaint of vision loss. So if it's affecting both eyes, then you think it's probably like a, a brain thing rather than like an eye thing because the odds of something affecting both eyes itself would be pretty low. So if it's both eyes, then you think it's a brain thing. And so then you just ask, you know, is the vision loss on the temples, is it bitemporal, or is it homonymous hemianopsia, where both halves of the visual field are gone? And if it's both the temples, then you know that there's something, you know, affecting the optic chiasm, while if it's both halves of the visual field that are gone, then you know it's closer to the brain, it's post-chiasmal. So that just very quickly can help you identify, you know, the lesion is in in one of those two spots. Throwing us back to step one there, Travis. That's right. (laughs) On the other end, if you just have one eye affected, we're starting to think about something within the visual field itself. So you'll start out with your vital sign of the eye, get some visual acuity. If that's normal, we're thinking something along the periphery of the retina. But if it's more towards the central, that's when we start thinking about the swinging flashlight test to assess for afferent pupillary defect. And we'll talk more about that, but if that is present, then your fundoscope will be helpful to figure out what's going on, where if the retina looks normal in your fundoscope, you're thinking that it's something related to the optic nerve, whereas if your retina looks abnormal, then you're worried about retinal pathology. Right. On the other hand, if your afferent pupillary defect is absent, then on fundoscopy, if you can clearly see the retina, then you would say that it's probably an issue with the macula itself. While if you can't see it, then that tells you that something in the vitreal cavity itself is blocking the signal to get through. So like a hemorrhage or or something like that. Perfect. So we have our algorithm. Now let's start talking about some pathology that you'll see. So within the posterior eye, you'll have a couple of different areas that we think about. You have your vitreous, you have your retina, and then you have your optic nerve. So what are some of the things that we're thinking about within the vitreous? So the the two big ones are if there is a hemorrhage in the vitreous itself, or if there is even a posterior vitreous detachment. So those are kind of the only two big ones that come to my mind. And then once you get into the retina, you can have retinal detachment as well, or you can have retinal vascular occlusion, which can be a central retinal artery occlusion or a central retinal vein occlusion. What about the optic nerve? And then the optic nerve, I guess the things I think about would be just if the nerve itself is inflamed, so optic neuritis. And then also back to step one again, temporal arteritis can also cause ischemia of the optic nerve itself. All right, let's start talking about some of these pathologies. We can start with optic neuritis. How will that present? Inflammation of the optic nerve, optic neuritis. So that's going to be acute onset. That is also going to be very painful when they move their eye around. As the eye is moving, it's going to torque the optic nerve, and that will usually cause pain. Obviously, visual acuity is going to be decreased because the nerve is inflamed. It's usually a unilateral vision loss. Again, this is not going to be beyond the chiasm in the brain. It's just one eye is affected. So unilateral vision loss. And then this tends to actually be females. If you just look back at the epidemiology, it tends to be young women, 15 to 45, who have acute vision loss. Because you're having the nerve 
being affected, you're not going to have that proper response when you do the swinging flashlight test. So they should have an afferent pupillary defect. And again, this is associated with an inflamed nerve. So autoimmune diseases and infections tend to be some of the culprits. So MS, Lyme disease, other autoimmune diseases, diabetes, things like that. And so the treatment would be anti-inflammatory stuff like steroids. So kind of like you mentioned, with optic neuritis, you'll have a classic triad of unilateral vision loss, eye pain, particularly with eye movement, and something called dyschromatopsia, where your vision looks like it has washed out colors in it as though you were looking through a frosted glass. You can also have something called the red desaturation test, where if you have your patient look at a bright red object, it'll look as though it's actually a faint pink color. Mm, Interesting. We've mentioned this a couple times, but you will have the relative afferent pupillary defect with this. And then more for your test questions, there is something called Upthoff's phenomenon, where you'll have a worsening of vision with increased temperature. Travis mentioned this, but there's actually an optics neuritis treatment trial, which has shown that IV steroids is the way to go, not PO, with IV methylprednisolone, 250 milligrams, four times a day for the first three days before you start an oral prednisone taper. And with all of these, you will eventually have ophthalmology involved for further evaluation and likely MRI to evaluate for any white matter lesions. Wow, that's a bunch. You know, because when I think of solumedrol, you know, I have 125 in my head as like the go-to kind of dose for it. But for this, it's it's 250 four times a day for three days. So 1,000 milligrams a day for three days. That's, you know, impressive. So we've talked about the relative afferent pupillary defect several times now. Do you want to walk us through that? Yeah, sure. So basically the normal response when you shine light in someone's eyes at both pupils should constrict. You shine it in the left eye, the right eye should also constrict. You shine it in the right, the left should as well. Now, if someone has a defect either in the retina or the optic nerve, then that signal isn't sent. And so you don't get that constriction. So what happens is if you shine a light in someone's unaffected eye, their their good eye, then you should get constriction of the opposite eye, the, the bad one. Now, when you swing the flashlight back to the bad eye, the affected one, that signal isn't going. And so the pupil should actually kind of paradoxically dilate. So if you shine the, if you swing the flashlight into the affected eye and it dilates, that is a relative afferent pupillary defect. Great. Let's move on to papilledema. So for that, this can be subacute or chronic. It can sometimes be painful in regards to having a headache, but usually not directly eye pain. With this, you'll initially have normal visual acuity. It can be bilateral, and this also has a classic presentation with headache, nausea, vomiting, and transient visual loss. On exam, you'll see optic disc swelling, and you'll ultimately need to find the underlying condition to treat it. So optic disc swelling is often due to an increase in intracranial pressure. So there's lots of things that can do that, whether it's a mass, edema, just an increase in CSF fluid, infections, intracranial, uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and also malignancy. And so for these patients, it's super important that you check their blood pressure, that you do a good fundoscopic exam, which would entail dilating the eye to get as good of an exam as possible, and then also doing an ocular ultrasound. If you are really concerned that the patient actually does have papilledema, this is a pretty quick and easy neuroconsult, and you should consider getting a brain MRI with contrast. And if that's normal, you'd honestly want to consider getting an LP. 
So we've talked about the fundoscopic exam several times. This is one of those things where I think for all our other procedures that we do, we spend a lot of time ensuring that we have optimized our exam, we've optimized our positioning for central lines, for any other procedures we do. But I feel like a lot of times for the fundoscopic exam, we aren't doing the same justice for ourselves. So with this, wanna, as you mentioned, Travis, it'll be really important to have a dilated pupillary exam. So we'll need to dilate the eyes. You have a couple options. One of the best options is tropicamide or mydriacil. This will last for one to four hours or so. Another good alternative is cyclopentylate or cyclogel, which will give you dilation for up to 24 hours. In these patients, we do want to avoid homoatropine and atropine. Then we move on to the actual fundoscopic exam. Ensuring once again that you have optimal positioning, you're gonna wanna dim the lights and position yourself in front of the patient, have those nice dilated eyes, turn the brightness up to as high as your patient can tolerate, adjust your correction appropriately, and that's when you'll start with the rod reflex, which you're an arm's length away, and then you'll get all up close and personal with your patient to get a good look at the retina, starting with a blood vessel and tracing it over to the optic disc. One of the things that we've been talking about is the use of ocular ultrasound, and this is actually particularly useful for assessing for increased intracranial pressure, and you can do it in two ways. You can look at the optic nerve sheath diameter, and you can also evaluate for papilledema itself. So regarding the optic nerve sheath, what you want to do is measure from the retina about three millimeters deep, and then if from there, you want to measure the width of the nerve. And if it's less than five millimeters, that's normal. If it's six or greater, then that is abnormal. Regarding papilledema, there have actually been multiple small retrospective and prospective studies which have shown that looking for what's called the crescent sign, which is basically optic disc elevation on your ultrasound is about 90% sensitive and specific for papilledema. Yeah, for that optic nerve sheath diameter, I kind of think about a three by five index card. You're going to go three millimeters down and you're looking for five millimeters across. And with that crescent sign, I've heard it called a crescent sign, a donut, a hump, really whatever you're looking for. Can you tell us a little bit more about what we're actually looking for on the ultrasound with that? Yeah, sure. So for the crescent sign, what you're looking for is a slight increase in the thickness of the retina, and you should see a slight area of separation just between it and the back of the eye, and almost forms like this crescent kind of half moon shape to the back of the eye. All right, now that we know how to look for papilledema and increased intracranial pressure with ultrasound, what else can we do once we've rolled that ultrasound machine into the room? So one of the other useful diagnoses that you can detect with an ultrasound is retinal detachment. So these patients will also come in with sudden onset vision loss, again, usually monocular. It should be painless. They will not be able to see well at all, as you can imagine if your retina is detaching from, from the eye. And they often have this classic characterization of their vision as having flashes or having this curtain or veil pulled over their visual field. Again, because the retina is affected, you should have a subtle afferent pupillary defect. Not always, but that, that would not be atypical if, it, if you saw that. And then for these patients, it would be super important to get an ophthalmology consultation. On ultrasound, you would look for the lining, the, the retina itself, kind of flapping in the vitreous chamber. 
and you can see that when they turn their eyes back and forth. You should see this slight curtain almost like waving in the in the eye. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things to look for, though, is when you're looking with an ocular ultrasound, you can see retinal detachment, but you can also see vitreous hemorrhage. And it's sometimes tricky to tell these two apart. So it's really important that when you are assessing for whether or not it's vitreous hemorrhage or a retinal detachment, that you actually have the optic nerve in view and your retinal detachment will trace right back into the optic nerve where your vitreous hemorrhage will tend to stay more horizontal and not lead you into the optic nerve. For sure. I'll also mention that it's very important when you're doing this to have sufficient gain. There have been studies that show that if you don't have high enough gain on your ultrasound for this, you can actually miss vitreal hemorrhages. And so make sure that you turn that up enough when you're when you're doing this exam. So if the ultrasound's not working, this time the answer is to turn up the gain. Exactly. So now let's talk about some of the occlusive pathologies. So I always remember learning about central retinal artery occlusion. What can you tell us about that, Neha? With central retinal artery occlusion, you'll once again have that sudden vision loss that's painless. This will classically be in your vasculopath patients. With these patients, you'll once again want to bring out that swinging flashlight test to assess for afferent pupillary defect, and these patients will traditionally have that defect. It's associated with carotid vascular disease as well as pediatric blood flow disorders like sickle cell disease. With these patients, you'll also want to talk to ophthalmology, and you'll work on restoring blood flow in these patients. Yeah, so looking at the eye itself, they should have a pale retina with that classic cherry red spot. It's as if you have a stroke that's gone to the retina. There's a differential for this. It could be an occipital stroke itself. It could be retinal detachment. Again, you should be able to do an ultrasound and that should tease that out. Migraines can cause similar symptoms with monocular vision loss, but there are other ischemic and optic neuropathies that you should also keep in the back of your mind. For these patients, you'd want to get a basic workup with basic labs, coagulation panel, an echo, an EKG, carotid ultrasound, and then inflammatory markers like an ESR and CRP to assess for temporal arteritis. I would say for treatment for these patients, there is not really too much you can do, but there are some things that you can do at the bedside. So just doing simple intermittent ocular massage, providing some aspirin. There's some data that says decreasing the intraocular pressure with medications like Timolol and acetazolamide might be helpful. Also, if you have the ability to provide hyperbaric, then that is useful. And then there's a question about the use of thrombolytics in these patients as well. A lot of options there. It sounds like a call to the ophthalmologist might be your first step here. 100%. All right, we talked about arteries. Now let's move on to the vein with central retinal vein occlusion. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so it's got a very similar presentation as central retinal artery occlusion. So sudden onset, painless vision loss. Again, we'll have that afferent pupillary defect. The story as far as the how they... C is is a little bit different. It might be just more of a blurriness and distorted vision. These patients tend to be more coagulopaths rather than vasculopaths, and these patients also require an optho consult. I would say that the biggest difference is just the appearance of the retina itself. Yeah, so with this, you'll have your classic blood and thunder appearance where you have disc swelling, pre-retinal hemorrhage, and those cotton wool spots. I like to think of this kind of like a DVT of the eye where the central retinal artery occlusion was a stroke of the eye. With this, it can be ischemic or non-ischemic. You'll once again be making your diagnosis with fundoscopy and you'll want to touch base with your ophthalmology colleagues, although this is a non-emergent consult. Kind of like central retinal artery occlusion, there's also limited evidence for treatment here, but things like aspirin, anticoagulation, photocoagulation, and 
vitriol injections have all been suggested. So we've talked about several different posterior eye pathologies. Why don't you bring us back to our case? Sure. So with this gentleman, we checked his visual acuity, and he is 20-30 in the left eye. And he has only a very mild ability to perceive light in his right eye. There was no sign of retinal detachment, and there were no other abnormalities seen on bedside ultrasound. Pull out that ophthalmoscope, and I look at the back of his eye, and I see a pale retina and a macula that has a cherry red spot. So with this patient, we narrowed in on the diagnosis, which was central retinal artery occlusion. We tried doing some ocular massage, provided him with high flow oxygen, and got a hold of the ophthalmologist. They did recommend providing the patient with acetazolamide and admitting the patient. All right. So some key points from today. Always, always, always get visual acuity for any eye complaint. Swinging flashlight tests can really help you out with your diagnosis. If they have optic neuritis, we're going to be giving IV steroids. And then we'll use our ultrasound to look for papilledema along with the optic nerve sheath diameter. Make sure you have the optic nerve sheath in view when you're evaluating for retinal detachment versus vitreous hemorrhage. Think of central retinal artery occlusion as a stroke of the eye, and think of central retinal vein occlusion as a DVT of the eye. All right. Well, this was super useful. I always think that the eye is pretty complicated, but just talking it out kind of helps clarify some of the tricky points. So thanks for doing this, Neha. Yeah. All that talk about crescents and donuts makes me want to go get some croissants and donuts. (laughs) Same here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My name is Travis Barlock here at Carolina's Medical Center. And I'm Neha Ray, PGY2 here at Carolina's Medical Center. We're signing off from EM Guidewire here in Charlotte. North Carolina. Be awesome today. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. CMC out.